You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhesky-Schneider. This is the Daily Local News for Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. Later in the program, we have an excerpt from Tuesday's Interchange, Authority and You on the Anti-Democratic Campus, with guest Steve Volan, a scholar of human geography and a city council member in Bloomington, Indiana, since 2004. More coming up in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour is Classic Scams on Better Beware, our weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More coming up following today's feature report. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, September 8th. I'm Nathaniel Winesapfel. The path of Hurricane Ida has left destruction to many pipelines and cables in the Gulf of Mexico. For example, a substantial oil spill has been found off of Louisiana's coast in which three pipelines are leaking. Talos Energy has been diving in the area of the pipeline in order to stop the leaking, but does not take responsibility for the spill. Luckily, the rate of oil reaching the surface has slowed down over the weekend. The Coast Guard has begun monitoring the situation and assessing the environmental impacts of the spill. A recent study through the Indy Star has sought to understand how much of the U.S. carbon emissions are coming from Indiana. According to the research, 290 million metric tons of energy-related carbon dioxide was released into the atmosphere in Indiana in 2018, which places the state as the eighth most polluting state in the country. Indiana is also more reliant on coal than other areas of the country. In both 2019 and 2020, more coal was consumed in Indiana than all but two other states. At the current moment, there is no movement at the state level to move away from fossil fuels. The study emphasizes reducing fossil fuel consumption as being the main solution to the pollution. The recent United Nations climate report indicates that the degree of urgency is needed to address carbon emissions. Opposition has been growing against the proposed pipeline connecting Kentucky to new gas-fired electrical generators in Posey County, Indiana. Environmental organizations have cited the environmental impacts to parts of Indiana and Kentucky that could be greatly affected by the pollution and construction of the pipeline. Similarly, the increase in emissions from electrical generators could further harm air quality in the state. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources has warned that the pipeline would hurt many animal and plant species including those on the endangered species list. Centerpoint Energy, the company behind the project, is still waiting approval from the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission to begin construction. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsapfel. The first group of Afghan refugees arrived at the Indianapolis International Airport on Thursday of last week. Refugees will be taken to Camp Atterbury 
a military base in southern Indiana that was selected as a temporary site for refugees. According to a report by the Associated Press, refugees include American citizens, Afghan allies who helped in the military effort, and, quote, those deemed as venerable Afghans by the U.S. government, end quote. Governor Eric Holcomb said Camp Atterbury will temporarily house evacuees until they are placed in permanent housing. We have been overwhelmed by Hoosiers who are rushing forward to say, how can I help? And we want to make this as efficient um, as possible in that process. And so whether it's the Red Cross or a church or an individual, we're not looking to gather um, my old clothes, even though I think that might help. Um, there are ways to make a significant and profound difference in someone's lives, but it has to be orderly, and that's part of our mission. About 5,000 refugees will arrive at Camp Atterbury in the coming weeks. Indiana Adjutant General Brigadier General R. Dale Lyles described why Camp Atterbury was chosen and the process behind vetting refugees. Camp Atterbury is well prepared. It's got the right facilities to conduct this temporary mission, and we have the right processes in place to do this mission and to do it right. And so where we are right now is this. Um, there are individuals at a point of debarkation throughout Europe and the Middle East that are being vetted through a multi-agency, multi-layer, uh, multi-dimensional uh, uh, process that includes our agency partners from Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, the Department of State, the FBI, and the National Counterterrorism Commission, as well as other intelligence partners. They are there now vetting everyone that is leaving the point of depart, uh, departure in, the, in that region. They will then be cleared to fly to the United States where they will enter a point of embarkation, and then they will be vetted again through the same processes to validate all of the things that were discovered before they came here and to further set the conditions for the types of visas and or credentials that they hold. Once they pass through that screening process, then they will come to Camp Atterbury, where they will go through a reception, staging, and onward integration process that then puts together a deliberate, detailed, and thoughtful process of vetting done by uh, the uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, Customs and Border Patrol, uh, FBI, and the Department of State. They will also, during this period of time, be screened medically and be held in a medical hold status for what we think will be about 14 days to determine their medical condition. Officials say that Camp Atterbury has the capacity to temporarily house 10,000 people if it becomes necessary to house more refugees. General Lyle says that over the course of the next 10 weeks, non-governmental agencies will work to resettle the evacuees. A 21-year-old male was shot multiple times in the drive-thru of Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers at 5.30 p.m. on Tuesday. The victim and a passenger were in a vehicle when the suspect approached on foot, according to the police report released later that evening. According to the Bloomington Police Department, the victim and another man inside of the vehicle exited through the front passenger door. Both running through the parking lot, the suspect then followed and began shooting at the victim as he ran. Bloomington Police Captain Ryan Podigo said, quote, the victim was struck multiple times. At some point during the altercation, the suspect reportedly dropped the handgun that he was shooting at the victim with, 
and the gun was then picked up by the other man that had been inside of the vehicle, end quote. Police say that the other man fired at the suspect as the suspect attempted to flee the scene. The suspect was not hit. According to Padaigo, the victim was taken to a residence on South Curry Pike, and an ambulance from IU Health picked him up from there. The victim was then taken to emergency surgery. Further updates as to how he was doing have not been given. Police found the suspect behind the strip mall inside a dumpster, and he was then taken into custody. The investigation remains ongoing, and police say no further information will be released at this time. Police also say there is no current threat to public safety. At the September 3rd COVID-19 press conference, Mayor John Hamilton cautioned residents about the increasing COVID-19 rates. The state daily death rate in most of July, uh, in most of July, you could count how many people died in our state on one hand uh, every day, five or fewer. And now you need both hands and both feet to count the average daily loss, uh, 20 people. Those are, those are people with names and families, uh, and that fourfold increase is a, is a dramatic indicator of the stakes involved. Health Administrator Penny Cottle shared that Monroe County is currently in the yellow advisory category for COVID-19 ca- cases. However, the trajectory is moving towards the orange category. Welcome to fall. I wish I could say that we were welcoming falling infection rates, but we're not. Uh, we do remain in a yellow advisory, uh, 1.5, with uh, 220 cases per 100,000 and a weekly positivity rate of 4.34%. I do want to note, however, if you look at today's positivity rate, it is 5.4%. And if that were our weekly rate, we would not be in yellow. We would be in orange. So our numbers do continue to rise. According to the Indiana County COVID-19 guidelines, an orange status means that there is medium to high community spread. It also means more precautions should be put into place. For example, it is recommended that the size of gatherings be limited and common places in workspaces be limited. Monroe County Commissioner's President Julie Thomas reminded residents that the county is offering financial assistance for those who need help with utilities and rent. Residents of Monroe County can contact their township trustee for more information. She also encouraged members of the community to help each other. Um, We know that COVID-19 has been exhausting for all of us. Grief, anxiety, work, stress. What can we do? Well, we appreciate the excellent care offered by our community's health professionals, the essential workers who keep our economy going the health department and health board for protecting us and and looking forward and looking ahead and being thoughtful about that. But we can do something. We can get vaccinated. We can encourage others to do so as well. We can wear a mask when we're out in public uh, to protect those who cannot get a vaccine and to protect ourselves. And a big thank you to those who did get the vaccine and have been vaccinated and those who are wearing their masks. You are making a difference. It can be difficult to be positive in these uncertain times, but please be respectful and be kind because that too can make a difference. President of IU Health, Brian Shockney, shared that the hospital is postponing non-urgent surgeries due to the rising numbers of patients with COVID-19. He explained that the number of patients at the hospital are predominantly non-vaccinated individuals. Uh, our IU Health South Center region COVID inpatient numbers are following the, an upward trend, putting added stress on our resources and on our team members. And as demonstrated in this graphic, this influx of 
influx of COVID inpatients is predominantly unvaccinated, as only 10% of our COVID inpatients have been vaccinated. And of the vaccinated individuals who did need to be hospitalized for COVID, none of them are in our ICUs or on a ventilator. This demonstrates the power of the vaccine. The resounding message at the press conference was that individuals should get vaccinated because it is helping and it will help even more if everyone gets the vaccine. The next press conference will be held on September 11th. Now it's time for your future reports. Up first, we have an excerpt from Tuesday's Interchange, Authority and You, on the Anti-Democratic Campus, with guest Steve Volan, a scholar of human geography and a city council member in Bloomington, Indiana, since 2004. He's recently completed a book titled Gownsburg, The Campus as a Municipal Phenomenon, which details the origins and history of the authoritarian design and practices of the American University, often in opposition to the democratic will of the cities and towns where it is located. We start with our guest discussing a passage in his new book. I think there was a passage you really liked uh, in one of my chapters where I talk about the notion of the campus as an anti-city. Yeah. yeah, yeah. um, Because it is built by a single entity and not like a regular city, which is built by a plural society by many different people, many different entities build the city. Even if it has a single government, it's still this interactive dance between hundreds, thousands of people and groups and entities. The whole idea of a campus is that it's a way to isolate yourself from that messy hoi polloi. Yeah, it's uh, it's chapter five uh, in Loco yeah. Urbis. This is uh, section A of, of chapter five, the campus antithesis of the urban. And to me, it's the whole of the book in a lot of ways. That may be the passage that I was trying to write for as long as I thought about mm-hmm. this question. Why does a college do what it does? To this day, I don't have a quarrel with the second place function of a university as a workplace. I mean, any business, any company has to have a place to work, you know, even if it's the desk of the founder and nothing else. But they, there's a some place where they work or if they have employees, they, they have to work somewhere. OK, and it's then, when they start yeah. getting into the first place and third place functions right. that I talk about Oldenburg that I question. Right. So I've des- always questioned. Yeah. Go ahead and describe those Oldenburg places so we can talk about that. So, yeah, Ray Oldenburg postulated that there were three types of places in a post-agricultural society that uh, people needed in their daily lives to to function. They needed a, their first place of home, their second place of work, which before the industrial age was the same place, the farm. And then the third places, the church hall, the restaurant, the bar, the public places where people gather. Places to, of, co- of communion outside of those other places. Right, right. 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 Okay. And that you need all three types of places to lead a, a satisfying life. Right. Universities in America are the only entity I know to have managed to sustain, if not do so successfully, uh, single ownership of all three types of places under one ages. Right. They don't just build workplaces. They build uh, they build dorms and house thousands or tens of thousands of people. And then they build, you know, third places as well in an, in an effort to be all things to their charges, who they see as not yet adults. Right. 
And I've come to question all of that. You know, <laughs> right. like I, I think that they're actually pretty bad at building first and third places. Compromises their work as second places also. I'm perfectly fine with the university as a second place. Right. There should be places where people can study and study together. I question the first and third places. I question the parts that have made them effectively independent city-states and why they're doing what they're doing. And is it really successful? And will they be able to continue or to sustain it indefinitely? I think the answer is no. It's also why, in a sense, I suppose, the city becomes a playground for the student body. Is there anything particularly wrong with that? Everybody needs a playground. Those are some of the tensions between the city and the university in terms of where the students play. The fundamental tension uh, between the university and the city is in the concentration of a narrow demographic group Mm -hmm. in that place. I mean, the number of 18 to 24-year-olds in Bloomington uh, for school rivals the naturally occurring population of 18 to 24-year-olds in a city 10 to 20 times its size. Mm. It's an English idea to put the university in a small place. Uh, And Americans took that ball and ran with it. And they decided that they didn't like cities at all. And the university should be in the middle of nowhere. Right. You know? And the problem with putting uh, a bunch of 18 to 24-year-olds or whatever ages they were in 18-whatever or 17-whatever is that students are an urban phenomenon, a collection of people studying, uh, but they're they're temporary. They're going to go back to the city once they're done with their education. Well, the thing is, students need to eat. They need to drink. They need to sleep. They need to party. They need to shop uh, like any other person does. And so urban services crop up wherever a concentration of people goes. It's an inherently urban thing. We have college towns because there needs to be some kind of urban functions, but they really would all have been better served to be put in our population centers. Right. You know, IUPUI is a more logical place for a university than IU Bloomington. I mean, so when IU was uh, declared, land was set aside in Monroe County, which at most had 150 people uh, in Bloomington. when. Uh, they decided they were going to put it into the Indiana Constitution. Bloomington might have been a, a village of 300 people in 1820 when IU was actually founded. Maybe a few hundred more by the time students showed up. There were maybe 10 students at IU the first uh, year in 1824 or 25. But it was a very small place. Right, right. Um, and even then, it was on the edge of town. You know, <laughs> right, right. Uh, like they, 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 they was outside the would-be town limits between Third and Eighth Street between. Rogers and Indiana, what are now those streets? Right. It was down in, you know, between First and Second Street, what is now First and Second Street. They weren't named or numbered those at the time, but it was definitely at a remove yeah. from the town on purpose. It's kind of hilarious to imagine the vice that you were keeping students away from in a, a town of 200 or 300. You can name those perpetrators of vice, I'm sure. Uh, let's keep the, <laughs> keep the kids away I, from those, those. What I wouldn't give to have proof of vice happening in 1830, the infantilizing yeah, perfect. really was pioneered by the American. You know, like the, the act of making the institution into a physical place rather than uh, a group of people was the essential act of infantilization. Right. In other words, uh, we're making this a place because we believe we need to protect these charges. Can you say that it's a, we need to, 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 to form these charges a particular way? Again, that's still paternal. I'm not saying it's like protection and paternalism. You know, the idea that you infantilize is interesting and it's, it seems very true. And that's, you know, your point about students still being called kids even today is an important aspect of this. Do we think that 
in that space, you know, Jefferson wants to protect men. These are our boys. Or does he want to uh, raise them, um, you know, and create men like Jefferson? I, That's a great question. Okay. <laughs> That's a great question. One I'm not sure I can answer. Um, was Jefferson himself specifically thinking of students as kids? That's a very good question. I, I want to say no. Um, I think that Jefferson simply uh, believed that that the agrarian was ideal. Virginia was entirely a state that was founded on the idea of the agrarian myth. Like right. there were no centers for the longest time. Uh, William and Mary was founded on a plantation. And so when Jefferson comes along a couple centuries later with his newer ideas, a century later, and it was the thing he was proudest of, which was ironic. Of all the things he could be proud of, that was what he was proudest of. And it was a spectacular failure. Yeah. Like I I was just dumbfounded to discover this moment where an apoplectic Jefferson, after a year of existence of UVA, discovers that it's all gone to hell. Like the students are are totally rowdy. Right. They're totally, uh, they're not just misbehaving, they're physically attacking each other. But I mean, he just couldn't believe that the students didn't automatically sort of uh, rise up to the ideal he had built. He just assumed that they that the, that what he had conceived was not perfect, but is perfectly capable of of being understood. And you know, the men would rise to the occasion. Well, you make and the point anything, that that was the yeah. built. He wanted that built environment to do that as well. This is where architecture is a part right. Of the story and it was well. a, it was a spectacular failure. Like right. uh, faculty wives did not want to live with students. Right. They were all you know designed together the same place. Uh, students didn't really want to live with uh, the faculty, you know. Uh, they needed to have their third places be away from their their second right. place. Right. And then Jefferson wondered why it didn't work. You know, why he was he was just bitterly disappointed. Well, I like that you uh, like, talked about him crying over it. I was as thunderstruck as Jefferson was when I found <laughs> that that quote. That uh, Jefferson. Uh, I mean, I I, I kind of want to read that passage. Sure. Get my copy of uh, your masterpiece. My masterpiece here. Here we go, Jefferson. And feeble at age 82, his flaming red hair now gray, stood in the freshly plastered oval room to address the student body, hoping to somehow speak the words that would rescue his school from their riotous behavior. But so wounded was the former president by their betrayal of his faith in them, he had trusted all in his belief that gentlemen did not need to be forced to do the right thing. He could not speak. He choked on his own feelings. Margaret Bayard Smith, a visitor to Charlottesville, would later summarize student accounts of the dramatic moment this way. His lips moved. He essayed to speak, burst into tears, and sank back into his seat. The shock was electric. I mean, so I think the, the answer there is, yes, he did see students as adults. Uh, but the thing he built for them was for children. Jefferson, what year was that where he was crying? Eight, 1825. So I know that- He died a year later. There's um, there's a quote you have from George Tickner, who becomes, I think, a publisher. Tickner and Fields was a publishing house. But he says that's at one point that we build new colleges, we buy no books. 1816, we build new colleges, we buy no books. Now we build new climbing gyms, we buy no books. It's, it's fascinating, the parallels to every single stinking thing that still exists. Well, I mean, I still like to point out that the 1820 Act that created IU did not say anything about books or about curricula or about school. Right, it said, right. these nine men will be in charge of this plot of land that is being given to them by the state. That doesn't say anything else. Like that for 200 years, that's been 
wow. the jurisdiction. This is the definition of authoritarianism. Like, here's the authority. They're going to decide what's going to be done. Right. They know they were supposed to do, but they have complete freedom to interpret it as they see fit, which they have. Interchange airs each Tuesday at 6 p.m. on WFHB Community Radio. To listen to the full interview, visit wfhb.org following this broadcast, or you can listen wherever you find your podcasts. Up next, we have classic scams on Better Beware, our weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. Host Richard Fish discusses three more famous scams, showing that the hand really is quicker than the eye, it's risky to buy something that you don't want people to know about, and danger can lurk inside an innocent package. Richard Fish has more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Here are three more of the basic kinds of scams that have been fleecing victims for many years all over the world. There are only a small number of confidence games, but an infinite number of variations on these basic swindles. If you learn to spot the outlines of a scam, you'll be able to recognize it no matter how it's been updated, glamorized, or disguised. Three-Card Monty is a little game you may well have seen in movies. The con artist operates three playing cards and offers to prove to you that the hand is quicker than the eye. He turns them over and shows that one is an ace and the other two are not. Then he turns them down and mixes them up, sliding them around on a little table or other surface, and asks you to tell which is the ace. The same thing can be done with three small cups or spoons and a pebble or a bean. The question will be, which one hides the bean? The technique is to let the sucker think he can do it. At first, the sucker gets it right. Then the swindler offers to bet on it. Once the victim puts some money down, he's guaranteed to lose, because the hand really is quicker than the eye. Nobody runs such a game unless they've mastered the technique, and nobody plays the game unless they're a sucker. Then there's the embarrassing check game. The swindler entices the mark into buying something or subscribing to a service that the customer would not want anyone to know about. Pornography delivered in a plain envelope is a classic example, but there are others, something forbidden by the victim's religion or at their work or in their family. The victim sends money and gets nothing in return. He complains about this, and the swindlers immediately send a check for a full refund, and the check is good. They have not violated the law." but the check is prominently emblazoned with the name of the forbidden product or service, and quite a lot of the victims simply tear it up, too embarrassed to deposit it or cash it. Finally, there's the Trojan horse. You know the legend. Around 1200 BC, the Greeks couldn't conquer the fortified city of Troy, so they sailed away, leaving a giant wooden horse behind as a gift to their opponents. The Trojans took it inside the walls, and Greek soldiers hidden inside crept out at night and opened the gates. 
Today, a Trojan horse is a computer scam, an attractive, useful program or an app that hides a virus inside, which does you dirty when you run the app. Be careful where you get such things and scan them with an antivirus program before they run. Archaeologists in Turkey, digging at Troy, have claimed they found the remains of the Trojan horse, although that's disputed. Whether or not the original was real, the modern version certainly is. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Doug Storm. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB. Monroe County Clerk Nicole Brown started the August 5th Monroe County Election Board meeting by introducing its new Democratic representative, Shruti Rana. Board member Rana promised she would work hard to ensure fair elections. I just, you know, want to let everyone know I'm going to be working hard for our community.